0: Because, because I'm a hot girl. I'm a hot, girl. I'm a I do hot, hot, shit, shit, hot shit. shit, hot 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 soy woman i i'm ruining your name soy woman okay
1: you're doing it right (laughs) (laughs) and
0: and where are you because it's still sunny out and now i feel really bad well i guess it's sunny over here too i just have my windows covered but
1: just the vitamin d while i can i'm in colorado
0: oh colorado okay cool cool so for those of you i mean for all nine of you watching on i think (laughs) twitch or something uh we're we're streaming on like seven different platforms right now. So I have no idea what our viewership is like. But maybe you reckon if you are um, a zoomer, I don't know why zoomers would be watching my show. But if you are a zoomer, um, you might recognize Danny from such Disney classics as dog with a blog. And I'm sorry, I only know that one because that was the one I like started watching episodes of to research. <laughs> That's horrible. Why would you do that to yourself? Oh, no, I was just really stoned, I guess. And I was like, I'll fucking watch this shit. Honestly, Why not? Good for you. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's still watching it. <laughs> it was cute. It was something I would definitely watch if I was not like 17 years old at the time that it came out. So I was still, I was already grown. So, so what else have you been on besides dog with the blog?
1: Um, that was like the, the big thing. Um, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader was, um, uh, was a fun one for a while. Um, I think my favorite job I've worked outside, like in the industry was, uh, National Tour of Shrek the Musical. There's nothing like getting green face paint on every other day. Um,
2: yeah. that is so cool. <laughs> but I have, yeah, I that. Like, <laughs> wait, so on, um, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, you were like one of the panelists?
1: Yeah, I was one of the little fifth graders.
2: Oh, that is so freaking cute. So so was anyone smarter than you?
1: Um, plenty, yeah. Um it Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it was fun though. Got to meet a lot of weird people. Obviously Jeff Foxworthy, um, Joan Rivers, yeah. that was a fun one, Harlem Globetrotters. So uh it was cool. I, I definitely think that invigorated my love of school and probably is part of the reason I'm an academic now.
2: <laughs> Right. When you were like a kid or where you we were in high school or anything, did you ever watch those like um public broadcast like competition shows between like high schoolers and stuff? Do you know what I'm talking no. about? Or they would have, like, quiz sh- – like, they would have, like, um, the mathletes or whatever. And they – like, sometimes they had it on, like, public broadcasting where they'd have, like, different schools challenge each other to, like, trivia contests or something. I used to really like those, but I always used to be really jealous because it was always, like, filmed somewhere in the States and I was not on the mainland. Uh, so I was always like, I want to be on one of these mathletes shows, even though I was not good at math. But yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of schooling, um, so as a Disney – like, I, I don't want to, like – just, uh, you know, shuffle you down into like a Disney kid, but yeah. Yeah. Like what, um, how did you get into, uh, acting?
1: The short story is I was like six or seven years old and the community theater near where I lived was doing a production of Peter Pan and flying sounded really dope. So I just wanted to audition for a role that would allow me to do the flying thing. And I realized I really loved musical theater and I just, I was fortunate enough to live in Los Angeles and um, and have really supportive folks. So that's kind of how I got into it and got out of it just as quickly. Um, so I <laughs> acted for about a decade. And then when I was 16, wow. just kind of decided
2: it wasn't for me anymore so how long were you with disney were you like contracted with disney
1: um i was with them for two years um so the second and third season of the
2: show so you did a lot with them right i mean like i i don't know so this is what something i wanted to ask you about is um whenever you see like someone that who's like a famous disney kid or whatever is there like a career course that they set for you and like whoever like whoever just kind of has like the most star power and will to do it they just get put on that track how does that work is there like a tiered system of like here's our superstars and here's our like b-listers or whatever um
1: i i think informally it kind of works that way but i don't think there are any formal structures that enforce that um i wasn't technically what they'd call a series regular even though i was on basically every episode of the the second and third season um but because I wasn't on all of them, my contract worked a little bit differently. There were people, like, once you get, like, a series regular gig with Disney, it becomes a lot easier to continue on that track because the Disney-Nick industrial complex kind of <laughs> makes, like, stardom and, and helps you boost your image um, for better or for worse. And there there's kind of a stigma when you're a child actor where it's like, wait, unless, like, Disney is the thing you want to do – Don't get involved with it right away. Mm -hmm. Like, you want to go into feature films or do more dramatic work on network television that uh like you'll get really branded and pigeonholed into Disney. So definitely right. like I was already in college when I was working on it and I knew it was kinda gonna be one of the last things I did.
2: And mm-hmm. that
1: just wasn't really a concern for me at that point. Um, but I know it was um
2: when I was younger and like thought this was what I was gonna do for the rest of my life. Yeah. So what is it that made you uh decide to leave acting? You said you you were around what, like sixteen or seventeen when you were when you were kind of done with it? A mm-hmm.
1: little bit of backstory. I started college when I was 14, um, which is a weird time to start college, wow. um, especially when you're like just I, I started Disney in college around the same time. And mm-hmm. I realized that sure, acting is cool, but teaching and, and researching is a form of performance that feels more gratifying for me because it's easier to loop into activism so mm-hmm. I figured, why not do that thing? Also, this is a capitalist hellhole and <laughs> off the charts. Um, and I wanted to love myself a little bit more. So I, I decided I was going to transfer to a university out of state. And that's where I ended up finishing my undergrad doing my master's. And now I'm in a whole new place doing my PhD. It, it feels like it's been forever, but really, it, it hasn't been that much time. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's, it's pretty wild to think of a 14 year old in college. I mean, that's like such a formative, I mean, like 13 to 16 is so formative. What were some of the more difficult challenges of being like 14 and in college?
1: Um, the, the program that I was in, um, had about 120 other kids who started around my age. I was by no means the youngest. I think the youngest person who's ever started just turned 11. Um, and yeah, I know like pre people just doing the physics thing. Um, that wasn't me. I, so like I had a support system that was Mm -hmm. the, the greatest part, but there, there were definitely challenges when it came to being in classes with adults who were four years older than me and just had different cultural references. I mean, now that I am older and more autonomous, I do identify as a Zoomer just because that is the technological zeitgeist in which I grew up. But at mm-hmm. the time, I really distanced myself from that and was like, yeah, I'm going to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the West Wing to try to understand all of the references of my peers. Um, <laughs> I like studied that. It was bad. Um I, I, I think it was a matter of figuring out when it was appropriate to disclose my age and, and when it was just going to isolate me more.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I feel like if I'm looking at a 14 year old, I'm like, you know. that's a fucking 14 year old. Like that's a, that's a child. No, right. I, but also I'm a little bit, I'm slightly older. So maybe that's why. I start circling back to the Disney stuff. Cause I do want to ask you more about your uh academic yeah. life. So as a Disney kid, like, at, like on set, what was a typical day in the life of, you know, a, child. After. Yeah. Um,
1: so Disney has a, and like most sitcoms, I would say have a really interesting, um, filming structure insofar as it takes five days to film one episode. The first three mm-hmm. days are, um, reading and editing the script, getting your costumes fitted, blocking it. It's very much like, uh, a, a really quick run through a theater production. Cause you're on a sound stage. Everything is just like super fake. Um, which adds to the magic of it all. Every day you basically get a new script. That's a different color to say like, hi, this is the third day you have uh, new lines now. And then you get yeah. new ones for each day of filming, but it would only film for two days, rehearse for three. And we were on set for basically as long as we could be as child actors. Um, that said, when you have, when you have to abide by child labor laws, you have to do at least uh, three hours of set schooling every day. Um, Luckily, because I was in college, I didn't have to do that. Um, I was exempt from a lot of the child labor laws, which, (laughs) for better or for worse, um, meant that I I could work a little bit more and deal with um, writing essays on set. Um, But yeah, no, they were long days. uh, But the food was good. The food is always good on set.
2: I was going to say there's some, uh, there's some studios and there's some productions where like they'll work. Cause I, I've done work as like an extra before yeah. and there's some like sets where like you'll hear from other like actors around town. You're like, yeah, don't, don't work on, uh, don't work on MacGyver. That's that they just will just give you crackers and like juice all day. Oh my- and like they won't give you a real meal. And then it's like other times it's like, Oh, you're working on this show. Oh, they have the freaking bet. Like what is it called? Um, craft. They have the best craft table, yes. Oh, yeah. like, I'm like, you've friends so, of
1: the craft people, because I think they are such undervalued members of any production team, but, like, they are the most important mm-hmm. people. They are the backbone of that production, and if you are on their bad side, they will fuck you up.
2: <laughs> uh, so one of my first jobs ever in Atlanta was, I was an extra on the Jumanji oh, set, the remake with The Rock. Yeah, the remake with The Rock and uh, Jack Black and Kevin Hart oh, and whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, like, six days of filming, and we had had three full meals every single day because we were on on set for like 12 to 16 hours a day. So they had to like legally feed us three meals. But I just remember I was like, thank God I'm on one of the better sets because I've heard nightmares of them only giving you like crackers and juice and coffee for like 16 hour days. And you basically just had to like bring your own food or whatever. So I've always like, yeah. um, And as a person who likes to stuff their face um, on a good craft table. You know, had to ask, right? Uh So when you were acting, like, who was your favorite person you ever worked with? Hmm. That's such a good question. Um, honestly, I
1: loved working with Rob Lowe. Um, we did an episode of Californication together, um, forever ago, but, um, he was just super sweet backstage. And, um, I was like 10 or 11 and he just told riddles and was like, do you want to hear a joke? Um, and was just like the, the sweetest dude. Um, for some reason, I remember that very vividly. Um, I, I, think he was one of the nicer people I've worked with. Yeah.
2: That's an unexpected one. He, Rob Lowe. Yeah. I mean, I've heard he's a nice, I've heard he's a nice guy too. He seems pretty cool. Um, so who was, okay. So I don't know if you'll want to answer this, but who was your least favorite oh. person or what was your like least favorite Donald experience? Donald
1: motherfucking Trump, uh, was the worst.
2: No, um, really? Like
1: I think it was 2009. Um, we uh, There was like this thing on the Jay Leno Tonight Show where it was called JMZ, mm-hmm. kind of like a fake TMZ sort of thing. And the whole bit was that he didn't have time to get his car out of valet. So he was just going to pay this woman off to take her car. And she was like, let me get my kids out of the back. And he was like, no, nah, I- I'm just going to buy them too. So I was one of the kids in the back and he like (sighs) paid me 12 grand in this skit to not express human emotions like fear and just like, at the time, you know, I'm nine. It's 2009. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, he's inconspicuous in terms of politics at that point. And my political brain didn't work because I was basically a fetus. But I do remember him making some sort of weird, like, low-key sexist joke about, like, women in education and how, like, <laughs> if I, I want to be a good, learned woman, I have to go to his daughter's boogie private school. Um, oh my god! You know, anyone touches hair, and like all of the the hairstylists on the show would just like rip on how bad his plugs were that's an easy one yeah no he's so yeah it's low-hanging
2: <laughs> fruit yeah that's yeah. so crazy okay so this inadvertently became the trump episode for some reason i did not want to fixate it on it but we yeah. talked about trump the entire first hour oh how's that? and wow okay so it's it's just weird though like okay wait this was a show that you were on together or a movie yeah, this was the jay leno show yeah the jay leno show okay okay so it's not just like some random role where he's just had to do this okay because like he seems to be someone who's like like everyone's met i feel like like everyone like, has a story about running into him for some yeah. reason because he's like everywhere in Hollywood for someone who like says they hate Hollywood and they're you know talks about like the Hollywood liberals and stuff like that he seems to be like everywhere.
1: Yeah. I, I mean like yeah it was it was very clear that he enjoyed the attention and obviously like we filmed at an undisclosed location because nobody could know where Donald Trump was but I mean he schmoozed with everyone on set except for the hair people and I think that like <laughs> it is it everything that he does is so performative and and Mm -hmm. it is just so clear to me um especially seeing how like certain people from the entertainment industry go into politics because they're just such damn good performers i mean although that that facade is slipping a little bit thank god um it, it, Mm -hmm. it 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 shows that people enjoy the attention and the the neoliberal capitalist power
2: more than anything. And it's so funny that we're like in this now because, you know, it's just like funny to me when I meet younger, like leftists or like people that were once in the industry, how would you describe your politics? Like what is your like ideology you lean towards? I guess.
1: I I think that's iterative. Like it's always changing for me. And, and I think that's how it's supposed to be. I think if we want to find the future that, that we think we deserve, we constantly have to reevaluate how we identify and, I wouldn't identify with any thinkers necessarily because I don't want to give into like that celebrity worship of academics or of, uh, like thinkers, but I think if I had to pick somebody, it would be Kropotkin. I'm I, I would identify most with anarcho communism these days, and um, being in the academy, that is a really difficult thing to negotiate because yeah. uh, universities are just like neoliberal shit shows. But yeah. they do empower me to learn more, and like if I can basically take the university's money um, for being. <laughs> student to learn about the cool things I want to learn about and research the shit that I want to do. I, I'm very pro-stealing from big things. Uh, <laughs> I,
2: don't I can say that, but I'm going to. <laughs> we love to see it. We love, we love uh, stealing education, uh, which yeah, is something that, that should not fucking exist in this world.
1: Um. <laughs> education. I think like public universities are, are so corporatized. And I mean, we were joking in a seminar that I was in about how undergraduates mm. are our clients. And mm-hmm. that, I mean, we're just customer service at this point. And the way that graduate students on my campus are treated and on campuses across the country, it very much indicates that, um, administration thinks we're
2: expendable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, what are you doing your PhD in?
1: I study organizational communication and, uh, the great thing about that is it means nothing and everything at the same time. So right now, my focus is on anarchist and alternative uh, forms of organizing against capitalism and specifically how we can do that in relation to public health, um, mm-hmm. mostly upstream of that education. I'm really interested in how pre-med education is structured to create um, just like normative medical students and doctors. And I think mm-hmm. if we can intercept that and create anti-racist curriculum at the undergraduate level we'll have a lot easier time making the medical system more equitable. Is that all that we have to do? I don't <laughs> know. But like that, I, I think that is an upstream solution that we haven't as, as like public health researchers thought about um, in full yet.
2: It's funny because you are not the first like radical academic I've met. And in fact, I've met more people that were radicalized through academia than, than not. Yeah, It seems like the whole structure of, Like how you have to move through it is so radicalizing because it is incredibly like exploitative mm-hmm. and, and it becomes very clear who will be able to handle that kind of exploitation. And it's usually not people that have to work for, you know, have to work full time and go to school full time at the same time. Exactly. So could you explain like the structure of like w- the program that you're going through now? Like, as I, I guess if it's not too specific, yeah, no, and
1: right? I, I mean, like, I'll be honest, I love my program. I think they are, um, my program, that is aside from the university itself, which is kind of a hellhole. Um, but I mean, the program does a really good job being advocates for its graduate students, its non-tenured faculty. Um, mm-hmm. and specifically, like, I, I think they're doing a really good job working toward uh, supporting Black and Indigenous scholars. Um, there's always more work to be done, but. The fact that they acknowledge and are constantly working toward anti-racist and anti-capitalist efforts is like vi- miles beyond most programs uh, in communication in the country. Um, hmm. but I think the, the structure of graduate school that makes it so difficult is like, Oh, there's this hidden curriculum, as a lot of my colleagues call it, um, when it comes to graduate school. Like, how much funding should you be getting? How hard can you negotiate for your offers? How much should you be teaching your first year? Um, how do you even apply for grants? And really, the only people who know this information are folks who have long lineages in the academy, either through their parents, their mentors, um, just financial know-how. And um, so I think what happens to a lot of people is they enter a graduate program with limited or no funding and um are intimidated out of asking for it. Um, but thankfully, in a lot of states, there are unions that exist to combat this. I'm totally going to give a shameless plug for my union. Uh, they're at UW Colorado on Twitter, Um, and it's the United Campus Workers of Colorado. We're a wall-to-wall union, so... Anyone who is a campus worker can join. It started out as a graduate student union, but anyone can be in it. And that is a huge change from where I did my master's in Texas. And in Texas, you can't unionize um, if you're a campus worker. In fact, Mm -hmm. we used to call it unionizing on campus so we wouldn't get in trouble. Um, And that is just, like, absolutely ridiculous to me. But the collective bargaining that our union accomplishes is like incredible. Um I I in just the 3 months that I've been living in Colorado and working with the union um especially on on COVID demands um a lot of it for background a lot of us were um coerced into taking on campus teaching positions this semester. So mm-hmm. for the first month of school and starting again in a couple of weeks, I have to teach two sections of freshmen who are the primary ones getting COVID um in Oh her- boy. And like, yes, they say they're adding protections and, and making sure we're safe, but at the same time, don't allow graduate students or other instructors, the individual autonomy to decide, I don't want to teach this in person, I'm afraid. And yeah. um, that coercion they take for permission, and it's just not the same. Um, so I, I think to return to your original question, because I got a little sidetracked, I think okay. it's a lot of coercion that um, the administration convinces us is permission. Um, and... Uh, not a whole lot of transparency on how much we should be getting paid and and kind of this culture of silence um, surrounding the ways in which we can better support and advocate for ourselves because they just don't want us to.
0: So we were talking about your uh, union yeah. at the university, and I think it's really awesome that you're also in a union, by the way. Every time I hear it, I'm just like, yeah. It's better than the screen
1: hey. acting build. I've been part of the SAG for uh Since 2009, and that is not the same type of union. I was going to say,
0: I I never got around to applying, but I was like close to being like approved, like basically like I almost had enough credits. I actually might have enough credits now to apply, but I'm like, when am I going to like, am I really, should I apply for a union in a, like an industry where I get like one gig a year because I don't really work on it that much? I don't what know.
1: Is- union. I mean, like I I know I, no shade to sag ex- except all shade to sag. After, but, <laughs> I mean, the only really big perks that i noticed um there are some protections for child actors i i could go off for days about child labor laws um Mm -hmm. and how i'm like super privileged blah 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 but like child labor laws everywhere else are dog shit um i i did get to vote in like the screen actors guild awards i got to be on the nominating committee for television awards one year um and like that was pretty fun because they just send you a shit ton of screeners and i get to watch things that i wouldn't normally watch but now that streaming platforms have kind of taken over the um the viewing system uh it's less important um mm-hmm. to have that but in the days when I didn't have Hulu they would give you like a three-month free trial through SAG and uh that was my <laughs> making it perks
0: <laughs> it's like oh thanks for I don't know how much you pay into the like, union either that's another thing I was like I don't know if I want to like save up and pay for this thing like just to say <laughs> yeah. that I yeah and it's like I don't know it feels like a union like that should be much more accessible in a way like monetarily but it's like I get it it's like a humongous entertainers union and, and um, what
1: happens because um, Cloud brought this up in the chat is uh, mm-hmm. there are a lot of productions that are SAG only and that's just to like keep things kind of exclusive but at the same time it creates this massive dichotomy between union productions where you're treated pretty okay yeah maybe some maybe saltines for lunch uh, but like on non-union projects, your hours just get, like, abused. And, right. um, I, I'm not saying that about all non-union projects. I've worked on plenty and they've been great, but it definitely does create this dichotomy that, um, that, that abuses workers in, in ways that it shouldn't. And, I and mean, entertainment is one of those industries that people are really desperate to get into. Right. So, a lot, of, like, a lot of scabs. Yeah. And it it reminds me of graduate school in a lot of ways where people make you feel like you're lucky to be here instead of being like an equal share part of a creative team. So, because Oh, you're just lucky to be here. They can kind of do whatever they want to you. And that's a lot of positions that, um, that get abused, but being the two industries that I've worked in significantly, I see a lot of similarities there.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the, uh, the intern (laughs) culture, like, it's perpetuated through just decades and decades of, you know, reinforcement um, through like the university system that like, oh, you have to like claw your way to this spot. And once you get it, you're lucky to be here. So don't freaking complain because there's 10 other people that will take your spot. And I can definitely see how that would be just as toxic and shitty as entertainment, because in entertainment, it's like there's 20 people behind you that are like ready to take it for like half the amount of pay. And it's like, and if you're not getting paid shit already, and there's there millions of people out there that would gladly scab for it. And it's just like, it, it's a sad uh, system that pits people against each other. And it's something that should be collaborative turns into uh, competition. And that's like my biggest critique I think of academia is like it should be more about collaboration right and this is just from talking to academics I myself dropped out of community film school so I am what speaking that? on a yeah I am speaking as a failed film student and failed actor it, it is, it is like the similarities are very like, uh, interesting to me because academia is also just so thankless. Like at least in entertainment, there's a chance that you would be like, maybe meet celebrities or do something cool or like get some swag at a party or something. And or like in academia, what's the, what's the, like, what's the ultimate like goal is just like tenured positions, right?
1: Yeah. And it's that. And like, I, I think I was just talking to some other friends about how, like, celebritization is huge in the academy in my field if you bring up the names karen ashcraft rebecca meisenbach tim kuhn like these are names you have you probably don't know and that's like Mm -hmm. fair because like it's very like siloed and specific but like these are people like if you met them in person you might faint if you were part Mm -hmm. of the academy and like uh, having worked with two of those people, I, I, I almost did, um, and that's dangerous. And I, I, as much as I love all of those people, they know that their celebrity is dangerous because mm-hmm. it just mimics traditional structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're all pretty critical scholars, and and would hate for that to be the case. But then again, like the pushback against it is very minimal once you have tenure, and you're like, that's not my priority anymore because I'm not on the I, I would say proletariat side of the academy. But I I really like what you said about competition and and how it is just like I my old advisor Josh would call them legitimacy games. And it's this idea that you can win the academy by trying to sound smarter than your peers and by resisting yeah. vulnerability. But um I've had the privilege of learning a lot about indigenous pedagogy and rhetorics of of rhetorical sovereignty for indigeneity. And there are these fabulous authors, um, Riley Mukovets and Powell, who... um, who write about indigenous pedagogy in such a way that talks about how important vulnerability is in the classroom. And I hate that I have all of my notes right here, but I'm totally gonna read. Them. No, fantastic, go for it. Riley Mukovets wrote, these women who she's talking about um, advisors of hers, um, these women created collective and multi-generational theory through telling stories about their lived experiences. They use their relationships to each other, to me, to space as the weaving component. This idea of relationships, relationality, is given me a new way of identifying and expressing what felt intangible inexpressible, embodied. And yet it's something I have known how to do all along. And like that really resonates with me because I think there is this like hesitation to share in the Academy and to relate your own lived experiences to the things that you're reading. But increasingly, even if Trump's going to be like, we're going to ban critical race theory, whatever, like we're talking about our lived experiences and like, for marginalized individuals, it is so much harder to detach your experiences from the things that you're reading and studying. So there's this, yeah, like objectivity is there's
0: privilege and objectivity, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And um, and I think to to talk about vulnerability, not just in sharing and the catharsis that comes with it, but also the vulnerability in listening to other perspectives is something the academy loses a lot of the time. And And to finally engage with scholarship that's like, no, you should be doing that um, is so contrary to everything that I learned in undergraduate and in a lot of my master's. Um, And even if it took till the first year of my Ph.D. program to get there, I'm really glad I did.
0: This is like very fascinating because I like, I, I love talking to academics because y'all are like some of the most dedicated people and you're just so, yeah, you're huge nerds and I relate to that. And like, I am not an academic, but I've, I, I really appreciate people's ability to communicate these gigantic concepts that, that multiple people have studied over years and years and years. Um, and to communicate those things. My brother, he, he just finished grad school and is now like an extension agent in Michigan and for university. And he is like, like like he is one of those people that can take a subject and you'll be like hey um so what's the deal with this and he'll like sit there and just be like well first you have to know about this and then you need to know about this and then you can understand about this that's not an easy thing to do like you know even if you understand that stuff yourself like even if you understand the subject matter yourself communicating that to somebody else for their benefit is a is a concept that or is a is a thing that teachers have to like cultivate um, and not necessarily everyone's good at it either. This is like a pro teacher podcast, by the way. like, we, we right. love teachers here. Both my parents, <laughs> both my parents were school. Te- my mom is still a school teacher. My dad okay. used to be a school teacher. He was oh. retired. So we're very pro teacher on this podcast. We Love it. Shout out to the teachers. I wonder if my mom's watching right now. Maybe. I- <laughs> oh, okay, wait. We had another question from Cloud that I wanted to pull up here. Uh, what do you mean by the academy?
1: That is a great question. I wish I was talking about the Oscars. Uh, <laughs> although not, I mean, it's just, the academy in the university sense is just as white as the oscars um so that's the thing they have in common but yeah the academy just refers to um institutional research at
0: universities colleges etc cool yeah it's it could be either thing we're talking about that's kind of cute uh, <laughs> so with or, like organizational communication you said it was what you're yeah. using so can you explain a little bit what is what it is you're studying right now and like kind of lay out the concepts that you're researching at the moment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I so organizational communication generally refers to the ways that collectives make decisions. Um, I think that's like the best way to boil it down, whether you're studying like a healthcare agency, a government institution, a classroom, a group of podcasters. Um, I would love to do something on the NSF Wongs <laughs> uh, network. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, but my like sub field of that is alternative organizing. So that's mostly, um, ways of organizing and, like, thinking about decision-making or, uh, collectivity that are against capitalism. Um, so right now the, the project that I am working on is about, um, Zoomers and how we organize for political and social change. There's a lot of research in, um, in academia and in marketing specifically about generational discourse and like the ways that different people of different like age cohorts interact and, and think about the world. Um, but a lot of that has to do with marketing products to them or making them the most productive workers possible. And that's super reductive because we don't just want to be reduced to the labor we produce. So. I am trying to extend that out to organizing because I think a lot of people, um, at least in my Twitter circles, view, organize, uh, view Zoomers as like an activist generation. I mean, you see people like Isra Harsri, um, Ilhan Omar's daughter, um, doing incredible intersectional climate activism, and she's like 17 um, yeah, and The advent of social media, we are the generation that gets to do a lot of that in ways that go against the conventions of the ways that young adults who are typically at the forefront of these activist movements um, have done it in the past. So what I hope to do is interview people who identify as activist organizers and Zoomers and talk to them about what they believe um, generational discourse to be, what it's like to organize with people both within the Zoomer generation and outside of it but also mm-hmm. see what they think the priorities for social movement activism are going into the future because, um, one of the concepts I work with is called prefiguration, which is the idea that like our ends and means shouldn't be separate. It's like a dress for the life you want mentality. So if, you, <laughs> if you're in your goals in the present, you're bound to reach them in the future. So if we talk about the futures we want and how we're actively trying to get there, I think for both scholars who are like, I mean, I'm 21. Like people like me are coming up in the academy now and like the old tenure people got to listen to us. But also mm-hmm. for organizer circles, because I don't really detach my scholarship from my activism. I, I think that there are both practical and theoretical implications of how that um, discourse changes alongside technology.
0: That is really cool. I, I really appreciate um, any kind of, I know this is like very hack and cliche um, and there's a lot of problems with this as far as like discourse goes, but it is, the children really are the future is what I'm saying. <laughs> but it's also like you I'm, so I'm 31. So I'm what's considered like really middle millennial Yeah, and It is always interesting to me to see younger organizers utilizing technology the way they do, utilizing their social networks in a way that is not simply to sell a product or, and I think that is kind of like what is happening like these days is the divide between the people that are sincerely using these methods for like social good and the divide of like people who are using these methods for self gain. Um, I think that is like becoming a wider and wider split in social media because it's kind of becoming more apparent the influencers that are kind of in it for the photo op and the inf- and like the people that are being an influencer is a byproduct of their organizing. Um yeah product of their successful organizing. So it's interesting to see that mm-hmm. being studied. And I'm really, I'm really interested in how that's going to be presented to the public when you're, when all is said and done. Yeah, so, I mean, so I What mean, is the I timeline could... for that? <laughs> oh no, I was just saying, I hope it goes well. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, what's the, t- so what is the timeline for um, you being like done with your research? Like when will you start to kind of, uh, yeah, I was gonna say you're 21 now. So you've been working on this since you were, uh, how long have you been doing your PhD?
1: Um. This is my first year of my PhD, actually. Oh, uh, wow. First semester, weird time to start. Um, <laughs> but uh, ideally, it'll only take four years, but realistically, probably five. Um, And we'll see where it goes from there. I I also joke with my advisor all the time that like you ask me again in a week what I study, it'll be different. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I think now that I've like submitted the approvals for this and I have like, all of, I, I've started writing it. I mean, I I kind
0: of have to commit to it now, right? And it's it's a it's a living thing, right? So your research is always going to be changing and. So has this ever happened to anyone that you know that were like something they studying, they were studying and got approval for for their thesis, like suddenly like disappeared and it's like they couldn't study it anymore? Okay. Cause that's like a nightmare. Like when I think about that for my friends in academia, I'm like, it would be a nightmare if your subject was just like so suddenly gone. Where, so where do you see yourself? I'm going to do the five year plan question. Where do you see yourself in five years? Are you, you think you're done or like will you be teaching? I don't know
1: um i and i should know the answer to that and i should have something like elevator pitch prepared but um i think ideally i'd like to end up in an advisory capacity to um transfer and first generation students at universities i think there are lots of great resources that community colleges have for preparing you for the transition but once you get to a four-year if that is your plan um, the four year doesn't really support you. And four years as a transfer student, I can say four years honestly don't give a shit about transfers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is like their main population of students. So I I would love to be in an advisory capacity where I could just like guide people through that and use my lived experience to better other people's transitions. Mm-hmm. But again, that could change. That's something I, I want to advise though. I, I think that is where. My skills are best used, um, and hopefully it'll pay well enough to where I can just like mutual aid the shit out of whatever organization <laughs> I can do and just redistribute, redistribute.
0: <laughs> nice, very cool. I'll ask you. I'm going to ask you a, a couple more questions about yeah. Disney, and then we'll wrap <laughs> it up. Um, this academic track that we're on right now is far more interesting, in my opinion. But I did have like one last question I wanted to yeah, ask. That's the way. How do you think Selena Gomez still keeps getting gigs? <laughs> or wait. I'm sorry if you're a Selena Gomez stan. I
1: I am not. Um, I simply don't know. Um, I'm not a Selena Gomez, like, I'm not anti-Selena Gomez. I'm, like, very right. uninformed on Selena Gomez culture.
0: Right. Which is why I'm asking because it seems like there's like hardcore stands which I never meet and then people who do- are like Selena Gomez still work and I'm like right in the middle where I'm like I don't I'm not a fan of hers but I see her everywhere but also why am I seeing Selena Gomez everywhere? She's not a very particularly good actress. Yeah. Anyway that's that was my last dumb question about that's Disney. That's fun.
1: I mean like <laughs> for her honestly like yeah, I good for her.
0: She's getting work. good for her. I have no qualms like, against it. it always I thought that would be much more uh i thought that would be a much more interesting soundbite but that was just me being stupid um <laughs> and being kind of petty <laughs> so um is there anything you'd like to plug like i you plugged your union it was a ucw what was it
1: yeah ucw colorado united campus workers at colorado
0: cool so what what will you be uh are you are you planning on returning to entertainment
1: If I do, it will be in a music capacity, and I think even then it will just be for fun. I've been getting really into ska lately, so um, I just (laughs) can write some ska with people. So if you're watching and you play any sort of weird-ass instrument, let me know.
0: You're going to um, have so many guys in your DMs from this. Like you're going to really regret that because you're a cute girl who wants to do ska. Like everyone's going to be in your DMs. Like, do you want to come over and play come on Eileen with me? Like,
1: <laughs> well, let me just say, um, you can do that all you want. I'm gay as fuck, but like,
0: <laughs> that won't like, stop them. In my opinion, uh, I've tried that. <laughs> I tried that tack. <laughs> I'm like yeah, I have a boyfriend, and I'm I'm not really into guys. Other than that, yeah. and they're just like, no, we love you, queen. And it's like, all right, <laughs> I will pick
1: the simp army. If it works for live posting, it'll work for me.
0: There you go. Yeah, perfect. Um, uh, so we can follow you at literal underscore Shrek. I love Sorry. your handle. That is silly and fun. Not
1: really, and I've had it since I was like 13, and I have no regrets.
0: <laughs> no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> All well, right, it's thank it's you so much for joining. Me. with that. Thank you for having me. I've had such a blast chatting with you. Yeah, totally. And I would love to have you on again if there's any updates with your research or if you just want to talk about union stuff again, we'll, we'll do a whole union panel. It'll be really fun. Or if we can do another academic panel, cause my brother is also really into being and an academic
1: K-pop, too. You're K-pop scholar. Um, yes,
0: we are doing a K-pop episode. That is happening. Oh I was, I was like half joking about it, but I was like, no, I freaking love K-pop. Oh my God. Um, and like the research around it is like chef's kiss. Yeah, I'm. I'm very interested. I'm looking. I'm looking at that. All right. Thank you so much, Danny. We appreciate it. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.